dedicated to each and every one of you who appreciate a great glass of wine. You know what I mean? It's Monday. Let's raise a glass to the beginning of another week. It's time to unscrew, uncork, or saber a bottle. And let's begin exploring the wine glass. Today, I am sharing a best of episode. It is difficult to believe that this episode aired two years ago. It was a phenomenal discussion sponsored by the Paso Robles Wine Alliance. Chris Toronto sat down with the three rock stars of biodynamic farming in Paso Robles. Neil Collins of Tablas Creek and Lone Madrone, Chris Cherry of Villa Creek, and Niels Utzen of Castoro Cellas and Bethel Road Distillery. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast. Did you know you can do it right now while you're listening? New ratings and reviews are how the algorithms decide which podcasts they recommend to others. And if you love the podcast, other wine lovers will too. And don't forget to add your email address on the website to keep up with all things exploring the wine glass. Slancha! Thanks for listening to Exploring the Wine Glass podcast, the podcast for people who love wine. I'm Lori Budd, a UC Davis winemaking program and WSET Level 2 graduate. You can find Exploring the Wine Glass on all the socials as well as your favorite podcast catchers. If you haven't subscribed yet, now's the perfect time. I promise I'll never tell you what to drink, but I'll always share what's in my glass. Hey everyone, thanks for listening in to Exploring the Wine Glass. Today, I am sharing a Zoom event that was arranged by the Paso Robles Wine Alliance. They hold these virtual chats on Wednesday afternoons at 3 p.m. Pacific if you would like to join in a future one. On this episode, Chris Toronto of the Paso Robles Wine Alliance discusses biodynamic wine making along with Neil Collins of Tablas Creek and Lone Madrone, Chris Cherry of Villa Creek, and Niels Utzen of Castoro Cellas and Bethel Road Distillery. Listen in to learn from three of the top biodynamic winemakers. But before we get into that, I'd like to share a new five-star review of the podcast from Freckles62. Take a trip with Lori to discover so many great stories about what it takes to make great wine. She's poured her heart into discovering fascinating stories behind wonderful brands and bottles and helps to bring to life all the hard work that goes into the glass. Enjoy. Thank you so much for your kind and wonderful words, Freckles62, and for taking the time to rate and review. I'd love to be able to read your review too. So while you are listening to this Paso Robles Wine Alliance podcast, please swipe to rate and review me also. Slancha. Thank you, everyone, for uh, coming on uh, to this Paso Wine Zoom Hangout. Uh, today, we have another little cast of characters from our region. Uh, the three gentlemen that we have before you, they're going to be talking a little bit about sustainability, uh, organic farming, and uh, biodynamic farming, a little bit of what that means. Uh, it's much more than just a kind of marketing term, but it actually means something, and it means something to the end user. Uh, and so I'm going to be encouraging these guys to talk about it. On today, who we have is Neil Collins. He's from Tablas Creek Vineyard, but also with Lone Madrone, Bristol Cider as well. Uh, we've got Niels. 
It's funny. Niels, yours says Chris Cherry on it for some reason on my screen. Oh, you know, I think I, I, maybe I, <laughs> I think I was on the wrong email when I connected in. <laughs> That's all right. So, you can change it, but we'll worry about that later. Now we have three Chris's. <laughs> Niels Woodson uh, with Castoro Cellars, but also Bethel Road Distillery uh, and um, um, yes. Music Festival. I wanted to mention that because you were wearing that today. Yeah. Yeah, why don't you bounce out? Hey, Chris Cherry with, with Via Creek Cellars and Maha Estate. Um, so you guys are all um, – basically farming or at least sourcing from in a sense farming uh, from vineyards that are either organic or biodynamic uh, doing your own farming like I said but also in a way influencing others whom you might even be sourcing from uh, looking for these types of best practices um, and I think first and foremost what does that mean what is that sustainability organic and biodynamic um, indication mean to you uh, first and foremost uh, then I think eventually I want you guys to talk a little bit about what it means to our end user so there you're back and right name nice <laughs> so why don't we uh, Chris why don't we start with you Chris Cherry uh, talk a little bit about what got you into it and what it means to you and, and we can eventually evolve into what it means to the end user okay so um I think from a sustainability point of view, <clears throat> anything you can do to make a step in the right direction to become uh, a better grape grower and winemaker to uh, create less impact on the environment is the right move. Uh, the three of us here have chosen to take it a little bit further uh, with organic and biodynamic certification. And for me, um, we planted here at the Maha Estate in 2012 and 2013, and it was just, it wasn't even a question uh, from organics. And then we learned a little bit about biodynamics. Coming from the restaurant business, we sourced uh, like 90% of our product from the wine, uh, for the restaurant was all certified organic. And there's, there's a few few reasons for that. One, I think it's, it's a better product, uh, makes superior food, superior wine, but also it enables uh, us to live here for a, it's, it's a much longer play. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. So I think as people speak of sustainability, it may be a short window of 10 or 15 years, but if you look at biodynamics and organics, I think everybody here at the table today is looking to make sure that the ground that they farm and make wine from is able to do so for generations. I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, we, we did it. We started, I don't know, when we moved our, into our, our home in uh, 1990, we planted a vineyard around in 92 or 93. And we, since we're living there, we're like, <laughs> it's going to be organic. We didn't certify it for a number of years, but we started learning how to farm organically because where we live, we wanted to be. Uh, to like growers in a safe environment. And, uh, and we just continued it throughout all of our farming practices uh, on every vineyard we own now. We're 100% uh, organic and a pretty good chunk of biodynamic too. So it's pretty exciting. We're, we're, we're hoping that other people will follow 
uh, not be afraid to do it because it's, it's really a good good way to find. I would say that you're probably a really good example of how you could scale that pretty up. I think you were saying that you have about 1,500 acres or so um, in right. being farmed organically. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it's a commitment on equipment for sure to begin with. But uh, you know, when things when things need to be done, they need to be done right now. You can't you know delay them, uh, and and makes you really pay attention overall. But uh, once we've got it down, we just I mean, everybody in the vineyard loves it. They know uh, that guy should have been streaking. Come on, <laughs> look at that! Look at that! Look at that! Look at that! Uh, but uh, no, it's just it's uh, it's a commitment, and uh, our guys are, are really appreciative out there too because you know they go home to their families and they're like, oh yeah, we yeah we weren't spraying anything, any any nasty chemicals today. You know? So yeah, I think you know, you're at uh, you're at about 120. Is that right? Sure, but I I need to point out that I'm a little bit of a different story, and that unlike Niels and Chris, I don't own the property. I I am just in charge of farming it, but more, more importantly also is the partner of this property is the Grand family, and it was the father of the current owners, Jacques, who in somewhere in the 50s, the early 50s, when everyone else was jumping on the silver bullet of chemical farming, he was the one that originally said within this company, that's not the right decision, that is the wrong direction, it won't, that's not the way it to sustain these vineyards in this land. So we've followed that role model all through there, Bokestel stuff, and then to this. This vineyard was planted in uh, 1992, the first vine went in the ground, and it's been farmed organically ever since then. I came here in 98 to start farming. I've never farmed a vineyard at that point, and I've never done anything but farm organically. It was certified in 2003, the whole property, and then certified biodynamic in 2016. And it's the same story. When that was happening, there was very little help out there, as I'm sure Niels can attest. There was no one to ask how to do this, because no one in the area was farming organically. I remember the, these guys being laughed at by the community a little bit for saying they were going to do it here. But it's changed, and and the fact that Niels is farming 1,500 acres now dispels the bigger farmers that I speak to saying, well, it's okay for you. You're only doing a 120 acres. That's different. It can be done. It can be scaled. It just takes the I think something Niels pointed out yesterday that I think is really important that people have in their head is the term conventional farming is such a, a mistake because conventional farming is organic farming. The chemicals didn't show up to the 50s. So... People were doing this for a long time, and I think we need to remember that. And Thomas Creek and me and all the vineyards I buy from, we're doing it for the same reasons, because I want my kids to make these kids to inherit great, healthy land that's better than it was when I got here. Yeah. I think I, the ground loves it. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I just say, I say the soil loves it. The, you know, it's just... It's, it's just a happier way to be in the vineyard. You can and soil and smell the soil from the organic vineyard versus one that looks like the moon and is been sprayed with pre-emergence forever. And it's a different thing. It's alive. It's not. It's not dead. It's no longer just a growing medium. Yeah. And it's such a visual, like, duh. Uh, you know, you you look. 
I was I was saying yesterday, <clears throat> I was riding my bike out towards Castoro, and you know I come to a crossroads, and there's a Castoro vineyard on one side that is looks totally alive and green, and there's an another property on the other side of the street that looks like the moon. It looks it looks dead. It's got a little bit of vine, it's got vines on it, but it's got nothing else to support that uh, that infrastructure, that ecosystem. I think I think it's it's a culture uh, that needs to be taken from the top down, and everybody here that's how it rolls. It's like we're going to do it this way, okay? There's no other way for us to do it, so we're doing it this way. I mentioned uh, yesterday when we were chatting about this, the horrors that we become involved with, and I was looking at some of that today, and they have a great line, and it says, "Farm like the world depends on it." And that is that kind of for me. That kind of sums it up. Right. Right. Yeah. So the interesting things that was discussed um, before, as we were prepping for this call, that I wanted to make sure we talked about too, was that when you are farming in this more sustainable ma manner, it does lead to other practices, other things. It isn't just about farming organic, because I think Neil's. You said it really well. Is like just because you're farming organic doesn't mean you're farming sustainable. Just because you're farming sustainable doesn't mean you're farming organic. Can you make those ties again for me? Oh well, I think you're referring to SIP certification. Yeah. Where I mean, organic is it's, certification is you know it's a you know, you're audited annually. Make sure you don't use any chemicals you shouldn't use or any practices. But it's pretty specific to use of chemicals. Uh, Whereas uh, SIP, which uh, we were a pilot program back in the day with the Central, uh, Central uh, Coast Vineyard team, it took a, uh, a different approach. It didn't say you need to be organic, but it said, you know, you, we want you to use uh, softer chemicals, but also take into effect or into account the erosion, your, your employees, are you making money, Is, uh, or, are you profitable? Because... So part of sustainability is not only uh, taking care of the uh, land and being a good steward, but if you aren't earning an income off of that, it, you're not sustainable. It's going to go away. I mean, you know, either the bank or you're, if, you're, if you don't have a bank money, you're just going to go, I, I, you know, I can't just lose money every year doing this. So I like, I really like the two together because uh, you are looking at everything. Uh, involved in growing and managing uh, the farm and, and your, your, your people and your lifestyle and uh, and then we were layering on top of it organic so everything when we were making our, our change everything was sip and then we started having uh, some venues become organic and uh, just being I don't know naive I would take them out of sip because I thought oh, organic is the is a long-term choice, but as soon as I mixed some SIP and organic, they were neither. They weren't. I couldn't qualify them as SIP any longer, and I couldn't qualify them as organic. So uh, we we just everything is now under both of umbrellas. So uh, we're covered either way, which I, I find is you know important. And you know, there's there is some paperwork involved. There's some following, and uh, but I think it's it's a way that when the consumer sees it on the label. They know that you have followed the rules, and you're—it's uh, it's an insurance uh, policy for for the consumer. 
It's like a third-party endorsement, basically, yeah. that you, you really want to have to ensure that there is a certification behind it, and it's just not words on the label, I suppose, right? Right. Yeah, it's, I, I think it means a lot. I, I mean, our goal is, okay, we don't want to be, like, in the organic section of wine necessarily, but I mean, if there is one, that's fine, but some people still have a problem with that. So we want to be next to any wine, and... People can look at it and go, oh, this one's certified organic or made from organic grapes. But this one isn't. Same wine, same region, same price. Well, I'm going to go for the organic because, I mean, I would do the same thing at a supermarket with zucchini if there's, or cauliflower. If there's one organic and there's one's not, I'm, I'm taking that organic every time. Just because I know that it's been certified. I know what they didn't use on there. Um, some people argue, is it healthier to choose a... I, I go yes. healthier, but I know it's not less healthy. <laughs> yeah. You know, for sure there's not any residual on there. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think in, in, if you look at how people buy food organically or non-organically, um, those that buy a lot of organic food may not pay as much attention to their beverage and, you know, there's a tremendous amount of chemical used in grape growing and wine, more grape growing than winemaking. And I think if the public became more aware of that, it would become something that would be uh, more of a conversation. Like in tasting rooms, you know, if you, you walked in and you asked your attendant, you know, wow, these wines are really great. Do you, do you use herbicides or pesticides in the vineyards that you source or grow fruit from and you know that may hopefully it's no but if it's yes that may change your thought of the wine i mean you can make you can make good wine you can make great wine from from vineyards that use that but i think you really make soulful wine when those ingredients are not an option I think you're you're thinking about more than just the end bottle of wine at this point. You're thinking about the land and what you're what you're leaving behind, what you're creating, and I think that's very important. I mean, I think it's important that this land, whether it's certified or it's not. I agree that certification is important because it it lets people know that you are following some strict rules. But for me here at Tablas, it's less about that and and more about finding the perfect way to, or the best way to farm this piece of property using the best tools I can find. And organic practices came first, biodynamic came next, and now we've jumped into the regenerative organic certification program, which is another step. I don't think one is necessarily better than the other, but somewhat, as Neil said, with sustainability, you put them all together and you start having a much more healthier farm. It's a lot healthier right here, for sure. Talking a little bit about that ROC program that you're you're starting up because that's a, an interesting pilot program that you got going on. Okay, yeah, I mean you can people should look it up on on the internet, but it's ROC, it's Regenerative Organic Certification, and it encompasses three pillars of certification: animal welfare, human welfare, and then soil uh, health. And it's been driven largely by Yvonne Chouinard from Patagonia, he kind of pushed it along, believing that farming is a huge, and it's not grapes only, grapes are a very small part of this, 
Talbot's Creek was the the vineyard pilot project for the whole thing. More and more important, I think it's time for very intense, it's very meaningful, and for me, we're already doing the farming part very well in my mind. What it brought to the human element was, was pretty important to me. Uh, it's And it'll become, as soon as, it would have been released in general, but the virus has, has not allowed them to do that. But I think you'll see a lot of people jumping on that program because it intent is to make the, the world a better place through farming and farming has a huge impact on on our climate and our environment etc cetera, etc cetera. and we're i mean hill zoots in 1500 acres is as when you get to the midwest you know yeah yeah i did i did bring some tools of the trade let's see them pesticide right here call a maccabee gopher trap <laughs> how, how does that work <laughs> Um, well, it's pretty effective. He catches his hand in it. Uh, well, you know, I <laughs> we're not allowed to use any poison in the vineyard. We we do use, uh, of course, uh, owls, owl, owl boxes for owls and that kind of thing. But every now and then, you know, if you get a gopher in a hole and it comes across this, we just we, we take them out that way. It's pretty quick. It's pretty, you know, it's pretty, I guess, humane in one sense, but it's sure lot better than, uh, you know, my wife walks every day with the, with the dogs in the vineyard and have to worry about any kinds of poison from second, in a secondary uh, way if the, if the dogs are, are eating, uh, you know, any animals that have been uh, killed on the vineyard or whatever, but um, it's, uh, it's it's nice to know. We She walked with a bunch of friends and, you know, if they're wandering all over the place and they just, they know that they're nothing they need to worry about. Socially distanced, of course, right? Oh, yeah. There's, it's a couple hundred acres. they got plenty of room, 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 to roam, room to roam. And then, of course, you know, for, for weeds, hoe, shovel. We use that a lot. And uh, but and we also have mechanical versions of the same. Uh, and then when we get into, so I would call those our herbicides. And then for our fungicide, we use organic teas. We spray in the vineyard. They're, they're made up and, and uh, they're, you know, sometimes made from mushrooms and other other components. But it's, you know, it's totally safe for our guys out there. Um, and it's just it's just a nice nice thing that, to know that you go out in the vineyard, you don't have to worry about it. Right? And, and as you have, as we all are creating work environments that are, are safe and, and even healthy to work in, that's uh, what, what a nice thing to do as opposed to, you know, we, we've seen what, what has happened with some of the lawsuits with Monsanto. You know, when, when farm labor or an attorney gets a hold of farm labor, this is going to crack open a whole nother component uh, of, of agriculture. I mean, you know, once again, we need to be, Thinking about this uh, generationally, not not ten or fifteen years, um, and I think the ten or fifteen year thought comes out of industrial farming. So, you know, I I greatly applaud uh, you, Nils and Bimmer, for you know you're farming fifteen hundred acres certified. Uh, Tablas Creek is doing one hundred and fifty. I'm doing thirteen. I mean, I mean. 
not that it's it's nothing, but you guys are are giving an opportunity for the big boys to look at things and go, wow, this this is something we can do. And if people want to get if if management wants to get behind it, and I, and I will say at the end of the day, it will become more beneficial economically. You can't just say. Hey, Chris Toronto, I want you to farm your vineyard organically. You're going to lose your ass on it, but you'll be farming organically. That doesn't work. But at the end of the day, it may take a few years to adjust, but wow, look at that. Our farming costs are down. Our chemical our chemical use is down, and the quality of our fruit is better, and our wines are better. I mean, it's kind of a no-brainer. Yeah, you would think so. And there's more and more with – with growers that I've been speaking to, they're saying that new winemakers that are coming to them looking for fruit or they're calling trying to sell fruit, the wineries, one of the first questions out of their mouth is, are you farming organically now? Which 10 years ago, that was not the case at all. Things have changed immensely in the last 10 years. Yeah. Do you think Paso has been quick to adopt it? Or you know, can you think of maybe other regions and, and how we might even compare in that sense? I think we're lucky. In the wine industry, I think it's almost a responsibility. We can farm like this. We're selling a bottle of wine, so our customer base are, are appreciative of it, firstly. But it's a whole different thing, farming cotton maybe, and probably a little harder economically, sustainably. Mm-hmm. So it's good for us to be at the forefront. And I think, I don't know about different regions for grapes, but I'm fairly sure that the grape industry is pretty much on the forefront of biodynamics and organics, pushing that boundary. I I think our region is climatically is conducive to being able to farm that way. Uh, Nils could probably speak to the larger scale of it because is is there a market for it? Uh, Oh, yeah. We've we've got some pretty good programs and people that are definitely interested in the fact that they can get organic grapes from us. And, you know, honestly, that wasn't the reason we did it to begin with. It's not like, oh, we're going to have a marketing advantage. Um, turns out we do now, especially now. It seems like the tides are turning on, uh, like Neil was saying, but people are asking and more interested in uh, a European market. I mean, the same wines that we make here that say made from organic grapes qualify as organic wine in, uh, in Europe. So we're, we do sell a fair amount of wine organic wine uh, to Europe and like Sweden, their goal is to be like 75, 80% organic wine next few years. So um, I know there's people are like, Oh, we, we start doing it. Like, well, we'll see in three years. Cause it's, it's not something you just turn on uh, uh, before you have the uh, product certified. So, uh, and it, and you know, it took a little time for, um, you know, Bimmer was the real pusher behind going full on organic, and I, you know, honestly, it took me a little time to totally buy into it. I'm a, I grew up, I grew up in uh, Ventura, Oxnard area, where we're farming tomatoes and zucchini and all that, all those kinds of products, and and it was, you know, the old conventional style. So, uh, I, it took me a little bit of time, but we we always farmed all our, our home vegetable gardens organically we've known each other and we we're like we got to apply it uh, to the to the vineyards also and and and, and the, the it, it took a little time a little time to convince our vineyard manager 
that wanted to do this, but once he started, he was, it was Bob Thomas. He was all in, and it's the greatest thing. Uh, and we have uh, Kyle Cosgrove, who has managed the organic farm in Cal Poly, all in. They want, they're like, let's do it all. And it's just nice to have uh, have that kind of uh, knowledge and, and enthusiasm behind it. That's, that's helped us uh, um, make it happen, really. It kind of help, uh, leads us into a question, actually, that's been posed that I thought maybe uh, you guys can just have a little go on, which would be talk about your education or training when growing organically or biodynamically. Um, so how did you learn about it? Who was, were there mentors? Were there people specifically you contracted with? But how did you get, get to that point? When I, when I started, there was really no one locally that was much use to me or help to me. Um, funny. <laughs> and, uh, I, uh, Why did you call me up? By the name of <laughs> Bob. You two stop talking when I'm talking. It's, it's really upsetting me. <laughs> I reached out to Amigo Bob Cantasano, who was of great value to me and just really just encouraged it and made it clear to me that this is doable. So I didn't have no education. I just learned how to do it as we went along. But the more people that do it, the more minds, the more Neilses and Chris Cherries and people that get into it, the better products and better systems become available. Mm -hmm. And that's what's happening. It's easier now than it was 20 years ago. That's for sure. Our, our, I think our region lends itself well to being able to learn from each other too, because we've always really been that way. This, this camaraderie of our region is often kind of supported by the fact that we, we need to ask each other for help, for education, for best practices and things like that. And, and so I'm sure so much of it has uh, really kind of been this system of osmosis amongst uh, many of you. Um, got another question uh, about what is safe to use when it comes to spraying? Um, and it's a bit of a vague question, but what is a safe spray? What What is a safe spray? What does that mean? That's a good question. Chris. <laughs> uh, water. <laughs> and sanitizer. I'm not quite sure. A safe spray for what? I think if whether it be for, for herbicide, probably herbicide, because so far when we've talked about that and you said, uh, Niels, that uh, there's a mushroom tea that you make, I guess. Was that for fungicide? We don't, we don't spray anything for uh, weeds. I mean, there's, it, it's all mechanical, right? Or hand or mechanical. Hand or mechanical. We've got a point where we don't even need a hand crew no longer. Yeah, I, I think... That, that's one of those things that you making that investment um, and here in Paso, our terrain is very uh, unforgiving. Um, Neil Collins could probably speak to the countless pieces of equipment that have been broken by huge rocks that, that live under the ground. But once you get things dialed in, uh, it's, a, it's a good way to play. But with regards to uh, to spray something, uh, uh, the, there there is an organic herbicide that I've read about that's based on clove oil, but 
I think when we, we think about weeds, often, when, when does something become a weed? When it's a pain in the ass? When it, when it, like star thistle, we've been, my wife Joanne and I are having this conversation with regards to how do we manage star thistle. Uh, we're not going to spray it with anything. So do we till it? Do we mow it? When do you do that? I think when you're farming by these methods, timing is so important. I don't know what you spray. I would spray hand sanitizer on your hands first and put a mask on. But again, that, that subject's growing. I mean, the mushroom teas, etc., are something that you didn't hear about not so long ago. I mean, you can spray organic sulfur, and we do a little bit. Is it healthy? Probably not particularly. Um, but it's better than some of the alternatives. We use none of the systemics, which are the really really dangerous stuff, I believe. Having said that, I'm no expert on chemical farming because I've never done it. But well, Neil, Neil what, what were you, excuse me for interrupting, what were you saying? You went to uh, a seminar last season and everybody that was selling chemical were like, you know, I don't know what to do for mildew. You need to go back to the old ways because all the mildews have built up a defense system and nothing that we sell is working. Yeah, it was, it was actually Jordy that was at that seminar, and basically that was the, that was the gist, is everything's becoming immune to these chemicals. You should go back to doing uh, dusting sulfur or wettable sulfur or compost tea. Go back to those methods, and the room just went silent, except for Jordy, who, of course, was great. Cause was anyway, exactly. Yeah, it's back to having to manage in your vineyard and timing and keeping your canopy where it should be and, and not uh, you know, just growing these massive canopies and then I'll just spray and I'll get rid of the mill, keep the mildew in check. But now you've got to keep it balanced and uh, keep the airflow in there. And, and you know, I think that's part of organic farming yeah. biodynamic. You really just pay attention every day. I think we've all touched on that a little bit. The thing with organic is... If you mess it up, it's really hard to fix it. You've got to stop it before it starts. If you get a really bad mildew issue in your vineyard, fixing it organically is not easy. It's being proactive. Yeah, it's, it's, it's looking after it. Don't let it start. Right. And I think one thing is in agriculture generally, it's all about control. You know, I'm going to take this piece of dirt and we're going to change the slope and we're going to farm exactly what we want to do on it. Where what we've noticed here at the Maha is, you know, you look around where we are, it's all forest and wildlife. I can't change this. All we can do is, is do our best to adapt to our surroundings and make sure that everything works within a system as opposed to, okay, we're going to take the philosophy that we used four hours north and bring it right here and farm that way. Well, that doesn't work. You have to be extremely adaptable, flexibility, proactivity. As we continue to navigate our way through these uncertain times, Dracina Wines hopes that you and your loved ones are safe and healthy. We typically would be spending our weekends at events getting to know our new customers, but quarantine means that we are unable to pour our wines for you in person. It is understandable that you may be hesitant to purchase wines that you have not yet tasted 
and we get that shipping can add a significant amount to the bottle cost. With this, we have decided to offer $5 shipping on any $120 order. Plus, we have a special six-pack offer that will ship three bottles of our 92.2017 Classic Cabernet Franc and three bottles of our double gold medal winning 2017 Plumber Vineyard Reserve Cabernet Franc to your door for just $220 plus tax. That is over a $60 saving. Our wines plus your moments equals great memories. And aren't we all in need of some great memories right now? So please head to www.dracinawines.com to place your order and use code EXPLORE to receive an additional 10% off your first order. One of the things I was talking to Nathan, our shepherd, earlier, asking if there's anything he wanted me to bring up at this thing. And his one thing really was the sheep program. We run about 300 sheep, and it's important to what we do. But his point was you've got to manage that program. You can't just put a 1,000 sheep in your vineyard and let them eat the weeds to the ground. You'll destroy your soil. You've got to manage that program correctly and move the sheep at the right moments and leave, leave grass there. So it's the same thing. It's, it's management of the program and not letting things get away from you. Yeah. And, and I will say, I think Talbot's Creek raises some of the cutest sheep in Paso Robles. <laughs> you know that you're fond of sheep, Chris. God. Hey, we have some questions about what everyone's drinking. So, Cherry, I saw you get up and go back in the closet there and go grab a bottle. What did you bring out? And I came out of the closet. Is that what you said? It's not a closet. <laughs> Um, I don't know, Groucho. I, I'm <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm drinking uh, an 18 uh, Via Creek Garnacha. It's 100% Grenache. It's all certified organic fruit. 70% from here at the uh, Maha State and 30% from Luna Mata. So all Adelaide District, all Grenache. Is it any good? It's exceptional. Yeah. <laughs> Niels, what you got? Was that one Neil or two Neils? That was two. Two Neils, okay. I've got a Bethel Road, you know, uh, Carignan, actually, from uh, a Well Rock Vineyard. So uh, since I'm sitting here at the distillery, I thought I'd better drink some, some from Bethel Road. Very enjoyable. Good, good. That's one. And Mr. Collins? 2019 Vermentino from Tunnels Creek State. Biodynamically certified, organically certified. What a good choice. Wow. <laughs> well, some people know how to kiss up to the host. So. Ask, yes, sir. <laughs> and your name's not even Neil. <laughs> how about each other? Like, what, uh, what are you liking from each other right now as far as wines are concerned? Bourbon. I mean, American brandy from Bethel Road, maybe. <laughs> Good choice. I um, like from Chris Cherry's Grenache. I like. Thank you. I, I I'm I have not had, but I am dying to try Niels's plural, uh, the Falangina off of that's that's Whale Rock, right? Yeah, that's good. Right. And then uh, I I think it's across the board. Tablas Creek makes really great wines, but but the white wines are are uh, really hit the mark for me. I think the the Roussan and the Esprit Blanc with some age on it, those wines are, those are world-class wines. 
And, and Neil's given us the opportunity over years to, to have a handful of people come into the cellar and, okay, we're going to taste topless whites going back to, you know, 2000. And, and the wines are, are stunning. It just surprised us all the longevity of white wines from Paso Robles region now and how, now we all know that it's doable and can be done with the right varieties and the right farming and the right care. It's a great thing. I mean, because when I started and, and Neil, Neil's can definitely vouch for this is it wasn't really a, a white wine region in the eighties and early nineties. Uh, how many times have I heard, you know, when I brought out some white wine, well, oh, you can't grow that in Paso Robles. Right? Uh, so and Falangina is a good example. I mean, that, we found that in you know, one of our trips in southern Italy, and we just said, we got to grow this, see what happens. And we actually have uh, four different blocks of it throughout the apple. You know, we have some on the east side, west side, and uh, it can handle the heat. And just, it, it, and it, it's one of those whites that really loves, I think it's better after a couple of years, uh, really has the structure to age well. So, I, I think it's looking at other parts of the world and going, Okay, here we are in southern Italy, and here's a, a white wine that is amazing. It's got great freshness, good acidity. Um, it's not Chardonnay, but it would really grow well in our region. Um, you know, there. Are, what have we been growing grapes here since pre-prohibition and commercially a lot since the 70s? Uh, you know, there are other parts of the world that have been growing grapes for hundreds of years. Um I, th I think that the caveat to that is it's not Cab, it's not Pinot, it's not Chard, uh, and that takes more work. And, and all of us here at this table are, are making wine from grapes that are not necessarily those three grapes. So it, it takes a little more work. Um, and then when you can switch people on to them, like, wow, that's really great. You know, that reminds me when we were in – you know, in Spain, and we had some little grape. What was it? I don't know. It was called, was it called Mencia or Menthia? Or, it was great. And that was a grape that worked well in that place, as opposed to, you know, creating an industrial product that that uh, is supposed to be liked by all. I mean, I, I'm not looking to make wines that, are, that everybody likes. I mean, it'd be great if you did, but, you know, we try to make wines of uh, character that show that speak of the place that they're grown. Um, and, you know, it took me 40, 40 years to like broccoli, and I love broccoli now. I mean, it took me 15 years to like Neil Collins, and I love Neil Collins now. I was about to say something nice about you. <laughs> <laughs> Don't start. How you're farming, too, the, the way you're farming – also allows the wines to speak of place. That's a firm belief, certainly I have, and that we have here. That that style of farming lets the land speak through the wines for sure. Yeah. Uh, we have a, a softball here from Jordy. How do you feel about the word sustainability? Oh, Jordy. Right? <laughs> Why don't you ask Jordy to type how he feels about the word sustainability? Well, we Does know. he want to... I bet he wants to join in. Is, that, yeah. is he having FOMO right now? Is that because it's overused? He's wondering how I feel about it? Yeah. I suppose, I mean, had Jordy been paying attention earlier, he would have known that we talked about the third-party endorsement. Sorry, yeah. 
that is definitely, I mean, natural, sustainable, you know, those kind of words are thrown out there all the time. But, you know, when there's, when there's the, that third-party audit and uh, credibility behind it, then I think it makes a difference. Yeah. For the consumer, though, what do you think the consumer actually thinks? I think we need need to teach them. (laughs) We we need to teach them. I I would say from the – personally, when we're speaking of sustainability, and and Nils struck a chord with me yesterday when you start to put all these things together. I think in the the realm of sustainability, uh, first and foremost – that they need to get away from putting herbicides and pesticides into the ground. That, that should be a starting point. Um, everything else makes sense. And, but for me personally, you know, don't, don't put poison in the ground. Don't put, just, just don't do that because, well, if there's no residual or, you know, this product called Roundup, you can practically drink it. Well, yeah. And you'll get a big check at down the road. Um, but I, I do think uh, the SIP certification has some really great uh, components to it. The third-party certification is essential just because, you know, oh, we, we farm organically. Well, are you certified? No. Well, why not? Well, I don't know. It's expensive and blah, blah, blah. And like Neil said yesterday, like that doesn't work for me. You know, if you have complete transparency and you can walk out to Chris Toronto's garden and into his back shed and go, oh, he, he does farm organically. But, you know, when you see someone at the farmer's market, you don't get that opportunity. Oh, we farm organically. Really? Are you certified? No. Mm. I, think, I think what Jordy's poking at is the, the, the term sustainability outside of SIP particularly has no guideline. It has no real definition or meaning. I, mean, I know vineyards that say we farm sustainably and you walk through them and they're they're farming what they call conventional, but they're using Roundup and pre-emergence. And so it has no real Their version is they're making money until you, until you and go to. It's not sustainable. I'm sorry, Neil. Are you? Both are. <laughs> Shit. Awkward. Awkward. <laughs> That's uh, I think SIP we, have, we have a few um, other questions. SIP certifying has tried to. I'm sorry, Neil. To sustainability is is I think it is a valiant effort. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have time for a few more questions here, and so as people are starting to pose them, we're getting them over on Facebook Live, and they're getting over to me. Uh, as well as through through this, um, but we have a question here specifically for Chris, uh, and this is a little off topic. But how did being a restaurant owner prepare you into making wine, or, or just you know becoming a winemaker and the like? So, um, well, I think what what gave me the opportunity. Uh, hmm. What one. Growing up in the restaurant and, and learning how to cook and being a part of that system was great. But when we moved here, Joanne and myself, and we had the opportunity to meet people like Neil Collins and Justin Smith and Matt Trevison, um, and they would come to the restaurant, and I was excited about wine. 
what it did was it kind of opened a door. We had no idea that we could make wine uh, at that time. I mean, you know, well, you have to be born into making wine. And, you know, as we've learned as, as things have progressed, that's not necessarily true. You do need a chunk of change. It does um, help to be born into it. It does. It does help. To, <laughs> yes, it does. I, 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 I know what you're saying, Mr. Collins. But um, from a winemaking point of view, for myself, I have no formal training. I, I'm not. I haven't been learned much over my many years. And but from cooking and knowing that the best foods come from the best ingredients, simply prepared. If you translate that translates to wine so easily, um, and really that's given me um, a great opportunity. Also, along with having uh, a broad exposure to wine from all over the world. I mean, at, at the restaurant, I get excited about the Barossa Valley and bring in a bunch of wines from Australia. And then I went to Priorat, and then I went to Catalonia and Chateauneuf, and you know, it's such a it's such a fun business to be in. I mean, you can you can drink all over this world really good wine and be inspired. Um, it's a great group of people, but uh, I think at its bare bones, um, cooking and winemaking are very simple. It's 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 putting good flavors together that make one great product. Yeah. That answered the question. <laughs> I did or I didn't? I don't think you did. You should go again. Well, <laughs> what was the question? All right. You guys, I think we've, um, I think we talked about it. Uh, I think we, we really made that case for organic and biodynamic sustainable farming in Paso. Um, really ha appreciate having you guys on. Uh, I, we do have a couple more questions coming through, though. So if you've got a second here, I'm I'm getting them compiled. Well, I might have a second. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, yeah. As as Toronto tries to do is, um, and so, <laughs> uh, we Chris, do, is it time for you to take a nap? Isn't it nap time? Me? Yeah, yeah. you. Seems like he's a little tired, doesn't it? He's got sleepy eyes. He does. <laughs> uh, uh, love you guys. All right, so uh, thanks for throwing me off there a little bit. What are you going to do with that beard? I don't know. What do you want to do with the beard? It, it, it's his uh, not be discussed here. Just <laughs> it up and it's his face mask, right? Great. I think... As the only facial hair challenged person on uh, this call, uh, he's probably having beard envy right now. Here's this question I was looking for. Okay, so somebody was asking, and I, and I think this really is going to um, be maybe easily answered, I suppose. I don't know. But poison oak. Poison oak in the vineyard, or if you have it in the vineyard, it's around the vineyard. What do you do to deal with that? Do you have to do anything to deal with it? What's What's the deal with poison oak? It's usually not in the vineyard, and I'm just coming off. You can't see that, but I got, I'm all scarred up. I hate poison oak. Did yeah. you just did you just nip slip us? You did. <laughs> you was waiting to open that door. I Janet Jackson view. <laughs> nip slip. Huh. She deleted. 
Uh, we'll edit this later. I mean, uh, we just call it a weed, and we take care of it the same way we take care of weeds. Yeah. Okay. Hoe will work. Sheep will work. Yeah. Yeah. So nothing special. It's just part of nature, part of the environment that you're in. Throw Chris Cherry into it. Works. Oh, yeah. that worked. I, I I like there's a there's a question that I see with regards to um, uh, drought and change of climate. Yeah. I I think I think these methods that we're working with uh, will create plants and vineyards that are that are quick more quickly adaptable because we're not spoon feeding them certain things. So <clears throat> it's all about adaptability. Um, hopefully we won't get to a point where we're, where we have to grow totally different grapes, but there's, there's an, op- I, I think, I think on, with the path that we're on, uh, our ability to, to adapt, um, will be easily more acceptable, Ex- not acceptable, but doable. I think one of the things that you had said as far as for drought and specifically is, is that how the, the land might look like a moonscape when it's not being farmed organically versus the other way where it probably is a little bit more susceptible to actually taking in uh, moisture and the like, uh, because then it's you know relieved of being a hard pan. It's more breathing and living. Um, would that be probably a good instance of, of saying that, Farming organically can lead to better water retention then, maybe? Yes. All right. That was a really long answer there. <laughs> well, <laughs> part of it is, I don't know if we really touched it with biodynamic, is that we treat the vineyard as an entire organism. It's a whole living and breathing thing as opposed to, like, there's some grapes, there's some particular grapes. It's everything around it and... And uh, you, you think of it all, you know, as the, as the ground of the soil is alive and how do you keep it more alive. And um, I think that's really one of the important parts is, is that we, we look at it as a, a living creature, essentially, part of our, part of what we're doing. I think you said yesterday, Niels, that you remember seeing as you converted stuff too organic that the water entered the soil beneath the irrigation oh, yeah. better. Oh, for sure. Like, uh, look at the, uh, where, like Chris was riding his bike and he saw the, the moonscape where people have been uh, spraying uh, pre-emergence and Roundup underneath the vines. It just gets, it gets like cementatious. It's hard when people are watering it, the water runs off and it's just this hard, uh, not breathing soil where organically we're, we're throwing the dirt up on the berms we're tilling it underneath the vine so it's uh, the water can just penetrate better stay down there uh, the worms are living down there it's just it's, it, it, the, the amount of earthworms is pretty incredible that we have now in our vineyards if you know it's alive and you just take a shovel and dig in there great to see yeah. absolutely Right on. Well, you guys, we're, we're basically getting there that time that I asked for you to commit to this. This has been another episode of Exploring the Wine Glass. Thanks for listening. 
If you have suggestions on what topics you would like me to discuss, please reach out on social media. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Exploring the Wine Glass. I'm also on LinkedIn as Lori Hoyt Bud. Of course, you can always email me at exploringthewineglass at gmail.com. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast catcher to help others find me more easily. Until next week, slancha. No, 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 never let you go, oh, oh, no, no, no.